Thanks for tuning in to the LNBC Students Podcast. My name is Taylor, and I'm the student pastor at Lake Norman Baptist Church. You're about to listen to another sermon from our In the Beginning series, where we look at the first few pages of the Bible and see how it's setting up the whole biblical story. In this sermon, we start to venture into Genesis chapter 3, that infamous chapter of the Bible that's often linked with what we call the fall. Now, the first half of this sermon was really me trying to challenge students to kind of take a step back, read, read it with fresh eyes, because so many times we hear these stories and they become so familiar to us that they're actually unfamiliar, and we aren't asking the right questions, or we stop asking questions altogether. So uh, I spent a lot of time introducing a lot of questions, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we can start answering some of those questions. Um, But this is a really important passage, and I think when you look at what God is trying to teach us here, it's really, really important to the whole biblical story and also to how we live our lives day in and day out in relation to our desires. So hopefully this is encouraging to you, and um, thanks for listening. your Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. So last week we started a new section in Genesis 2, or no, it was the week before that, started a new section in Genesis 2 chapter, or verse 4, and it started with these are the generations of, and that kind of clues us into new sections in the book of Genesis. And there what we're seeing is the emphasis is on the man and the woman in the garden with the two trees, and it's really setting up this moment that we're about to read about in chapter 3. But there's one passage that I want to remind us of from chapter 2 that's really, really important for tonight, and it's this verse uh, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man that he had formed from the dust, saying... You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So like we said, man's obedience is critical. It's vital to the expansion of Eden, to him working and keeping the garden, to him cultivating culture. In order to accomplish what God has designed for the human being, he has to stay alive. And that happens when he obeys. So if he's going to work the garden, expand God's presence, bring God's blessing throughout the whole cosmos, his obedience to this command is critical. So we continued the story last week, um, 2, 18 through 25, we saw the formation of a helper, which is not a weak word. It is a strong word. It is used in reference to God and warriors throughout the Bible, and the man needed help. It wasn't good that he was alone. So God formed the woman to be his counterpartner to help him in the mission so that they together could be interdependent upon one another to fulfill the mission that was the first marriage. But that's where we pick up the story. 
God has just formed the woman, and now this is what we see. And I'm going to include the last verse from that chapter because it's really important. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's weird. That is a weird story. Like, what in the world just happened? There's a talking snake. Nakedness is a big deal for some reason. And um, they eat of this tree, this magical tree, and then... They realize they are naked, and that's a problem now. What in the world is happening in this story? And um, I'll be honest with you guys. We were planning on going through, like, verse 13, and I started studying this about two weeks ago. And the more and more I studied this passage, the more confused I got. (laughs) So we're just going to bite off what we can chew today and try and get ourselves into a better position to understand this story. And it's a weird story. It's an odd story. So um, that's, that's one of the big points I want to make up front. I want us to shake ourselves loose of what we, call, what we can call the lullaby effect. You guys know what I'm talking about with that? Like, you guys know lullabies? Know any lullabies? As a father, I... Um, started to hear these lullabies more and more, and I remember this distinct moment. I was sitting in Hudson's room, and this lullaby started to play like instrumentally on one of his toys while he was sleeping, and it was Rockabye Baby. And then I started to listen to the lyrics of Rockabye Baby, and I was forever weirded out. Look at these lyrics. Rockabye Baby on the treetop. Why is a baby on top of a tree? When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby cradle and all. Why am I singing this to my child? Why is this a song for children? This is weird. It's about a baby in a tree falling probably to its death. This is horrible. But we just sing it, right? Then will come baby cradle. Oh my gosh. Because we have the lullaby effect, we're so familiar with it that we actually haven't thought about what we're listening to or what we're saying. And I would say a lot of us are like that with biblical stories. We know the story so well, we know so much about it that we actually haven't stopped to think 
that's weird. Or what is this teaching me? What is this about? This rabbi, David Foreman, this is the guy who talked about the lullaby effect. I read a book of his on this story. And he says this happens, the lullaby effect happens when we know a story too well, where it becomes so familiar to us that we actually don't consider the most important questions it wants us to ask. This is what he says, the lullaby effect blocks our ability to ask or even to see the really important questions that the Bible begs us to ask it. There's a few what we can call elephants in the room with this story that we just went over. Like there's some glaring things that the story wants you to ponder and be like, this is weird, this is startling. Um, If it's weird, it's important. That's a really good Bible rule. Like if it's weird to you, it's probably really important. And it should be weird. So there's some things here that are odd or weird. Um, So here's a collection of questions I think we should have. First question on our minds as we read this story, why does nakedness seem to be the central theme? Like we're talking about nakedness, right? At the beginning of the story, it says the man and his wife are both naked and unashamed. And the text goes out of its way to emphasize that they were naked. And then we'll see after their disobedience, the first thing that is mentioned is that they become aware of their nakedness. And it's about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You would expect them after they disobeyed to be like, and then they know good and evil. No. Then they know that they're naked. That's weird. And then what you see is of uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, man is hiding from God after the disobedience. And what is the reason he gives? He gives the reason that he's afraid because he realizes he's naked. And God's like, who told you that you were naked? And so nakedness, as odd as it is, as weird as it is, is a central theme to understanding the full story that we're going to read. Now, we're not going to be able to answer that question or possibly answer that question tonight because I think as we continue in the story, we'll start to get a better understanding of why. But that is one question that we should have on the back of our minds as we're reading this story. What in the world is up with nakedness? Another really important question, who or what is this serpent? Where does he come from? We don't get much background information. We do get one verse, and in that verse, we, we can see a few key things. First, he's called a serpent, uh, and that Hebrew word is the Hebrew word nahash. Okay? Now, this word, it can be translated a, different, a few different ways, and we won't get into the technical stuff here, but um, if you were to translate this word in Hebrew, it can be translated serpent when it's a noun, Or if it was going to be used as a verb, it could be translated as the diviner or someone who's deceptively using divination or sorcery. Or if it's an adjective, it could be meaning shining one. So there's a big book that I've been reading on this. And basically, what these things are doing, they're hinting that this is not just a serpent. I mean, he's obviously talking. And every time you see talking animals in the Bible, it's a bad thing. Or it's always equated with sorcery, like Balaam's donkey. It's equated with sorcery and magic and not good. So what the text is kind of cluing us in here with this serpent is that perhaps this is a spiritual being, not just a serpent. Maybe not a literal animal in the field, but actually a spiritual being 
disguised as a serpent or something like that. And really, when you go throughout the rest of Scripture, there's some Old Testament passages, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and the New Testament that attributes Satan to the serpent, or the devil is the serpent in the garden. So, obviously, this serpent is more than just a snake that happens to talk, which is weird enough. This is some sort of spiritual being disguised in a serpent-like way. Second, this was a really crazy thing. Um, Verse 1 says that the serpent was more, what does your translation say? Crafty? Cunning? Any other different translations in the room? Crafty, cunning? Clever? Okay, that's interesting. So that word um, is the Hebrew word aram, which is the same word for naked, which is really weird. Yeah. Thank you, Carson, for, for uh, confirming the weirdness of that, right? So think about this. As you're reading the story in Hebrew, what you see is the man and his wife were both naked, arumim, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty, same word. What is going on here? I think the writer of Genesis is creating a wordplay a word play to, to insert another stream of thought in your consciousness, to make you think along these lines. Wait, is the serpent just like the man and the woman? If the man and the woman are naked, and then the same word is used for the serpent, maybe what you're starting to think is, what's different about a man and a woman? What's different about a serpent? Or another way to ask that is, what does it mean to be human? If the serpent is said to be the same as the man and the woman, they're, they're inserting this line of questioning. What does it mean to be human? And I would say that that's actually a very important question throughout the rest of the account. Okay, so there are actually many other questions that we should ask of this text. Like, what's the deal with the two trees? Why is the forbidden tree the one that's about the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, did the man and woman not know good and evil? And if they didn't know good and evil, why did they need to not know good and evil? Where is the man in all of this? Is he there with the woman? Again, this serpent, why is he having this conversation? Where did he come from? Is he, is he actually lying? Because much of what he says turns out to be the truth. So is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? What in the world is going on? There's all of these questions that you should be asking this passage, and the passage wants you to ask these questions. Okay, so I only say that and bring up all of these questions because I want to shake us loose from thinking we know what this story is about. We don't necessarily know what this story is about if we're not asking those questions and thoughtfully pursuing answers to that question. As people who have heard this story several times, probably, I think it's important that we don't let our familiarity with the story make us unfamiliar with what's going on here. And that's a, that's a real big danger. So we're just going to walk through the sequence of events here. The first seven verses of chapter three uh, describe the act of the fall, this confrontation between uh, the serpent and the woman. Again, we still haven't seen Eve show up in the account yet. So Um, that's also a whole new set of questions. We haven't seen Adam or Eve. We've just seen the man and the woman, whole different train of thought. But we're going to see the woman and the serpent have a discussion, and then the act 
act is going to happen. The next seven verses are going to be God's encounter with the man and the woman. Okay, so we're just going to go over the first set. Okay, is everyone on, on board? We're good? Okay, let's, let's try and get through some of this because I think there's something really important here. Um, the, the account is really quick. It's boom, boom, bang. But in these seven verses, the whole world is turned upside down. The whole trajectory of history is altered. So let's pay attention. Okay? Let's see the sequence here. First, the serpent questions the woman. The serpent asks whether God actually said something. He said, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that's not what God said. Right? God, God said to the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What the serpent is doing is he's craftily, cleverly confusing the woman to get the woman to express the command in her own words. And this is what she's about to do. So this is not a simple attack on, God didn't say that. He's going to be clever. He's going to confuse and muddy the waters a little bit. So what we see is the serpent questions the woman, and she responds in verses uh, 2 and 3. So the woman does three important things in her response that I want us to see. First, she answers and says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, there's something missing in the woman's response compared to what God commanded. She omits or leaves out the word that emphasizes the blessing of being able to freely eat of every tree. So it's subtle but it's an interesting omission. What she's doing is she's belittling the extent of God's blessing. God said, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden. She summarizes that in her own words as, we can eat of the trees of the garden. So she's just, it's slight, it's subtle, but she's belittling the extent of God's blessing. She doesn't include the freely or the every. So well, this is a really important point for all of us. Because this, as we'll talk about, this is our story. This will be every one of us. This is how we disobey God and fall off the path. So when you have doubts well up inside you, when you feel that you're not good enough, when you feel like you are not who you are supposed to be as a Christian, when you're overwhelmed with anxiety, when you have thoughts of, you name it, loneliness, self-harm, depression, or any thought that is leveled against you, to attack your identity in Jesus, do not belittle God's blessing. Don't forget on the power of gratitude and the power of dwelling on what God has given you. Don't belittle those things. Remind yourself of God's blessing. If you feel defeated, if you feel run down, exhausted, totally inadequate, which you will have those thoughts, we have all had those thoughts, in those moments, do not belittle God's blessing. Do not belittle God's blessing. Gratitude is a very powerful weapon against the lies of the enemy. And I think we can see that here. The subtle exclusion of God's blessing in, e in the woman's understanding of the command paves the way to her disobedience. Uh, secondly, the woman adds to God's command. In her response, she said that God said, you shall not eat of the tree or the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God never said anything about 
touching the tree. And so she's adding this idea that not only could they not eat of it, they could not touch it. Um, there's something to be said there about, you know, adding to God's commands in terms of what we might call legalism. Um, and it then turns and puts you on a path to disobedience. Um, but we won't dwell on that. Third important thing, she lessens God's emphatic tone. Um, this is a bit hard to see in English, but instead of you will surely die, or instead of you will be doomed to death, which is more of like the original language, she simply says, you will die. She says, if we eat of the tree, we will die. Where God said, you will be doomed to death. So she's lessening the emphatic seriousness of God's tone, and she's turning it into a less emphatic command, and she's just being maybe somewhat casual about it. So uh, I think these could be interesting pictures of what it's like for us to trail down the path of disobedience. Um, and you could dwell on that. You could think about that and contemplate that. But we're going to continue in another direction. How did the woman's command uh, or how did the woman's misunderstanding of God's command come to be? We don't really know. Maybe the man didn't tell it to her correctly because she wasn't there when God commanded the man. Or maybe she, this is very innocent, and she's just summarizing, and it's convenient. We don't know. But the point is this. The serpent has succeeded at craftily implanting a subtle amount of confusion in regards to God's command. And this is the beginning of disobedience. Having a muddy understanding of what God has said is the beginning to disobedience. But there's more to what the serpent is doing here. He's not only going to confuse the command, he's also going to attack how the woman should respond to the command. And that's what we see here. So the serpent responds to the woman's answer. The serpent directly confronts one aspect of God's command. This is what you can see in verse 4 and 5. God said you will die. You will not, you'll not die. You'll not surely die. No, God's real concern the serpent wages, is that you might become like him. That's what God's really concerned about. He's not concerned about you. He's concerned about himself. He's an egotistical God. So the serpent is attacking God's motivations here. He's claiming that the reasoning behind God's command and, and this whole idea of them not dying is really all about God protecting his space protecting himself and his ego and his title. So he's basically attacking the character of God. Rather than muddying the command and just, or just muddying the command and confusing the woman, the serpent here is providing, well, we could say a different subtext to the command, making it seem that God has hidden or alternative motivations behind his command. So this is basically what the serpent is doing. He's painting a different portrait of God's character. He's saying God is really this type of God. He's not a God that wants to bless you and wants what is best for you. No, this is a God that wants to suppress you, to keep you down, to make you unhappy because he doesn't want you to be like him. So the serpent is turning the woman's reality upside down, filling her head with half-truths to confuse her, and making her question the, the character of God, the one that wants to bless her, 
the one that made her and formed her for good purposes. So here's the principle as I contemplate this that just shook me. The path to disobedience is paved with doubts in the love of God. The path to disobedience is paved with doubts in the love of God. We will fall into temptation. We will fall into disobedience when we entertain lies about God's love and God's character. When we start to think that God does not love us, we begin to turn God into a God that we don't care to listen to. So this is, this is the subtle, clever way that the devil, the serpent, this whatever, evil spiritual being is deterring the woman. He is implanting ideas about the love of God for her. And as soon as she caves into this idea that maybe God does not love and care for her, this then almost is the tipping point for what we read next. So the man and woman both eat and suffer the consequences. Apparently, um, the man and the woman both eat, and I would say that there's a lot of clues in this story to say that the man was with her there throughout this whole conversation. I don't know what he was doing as he was just staring at this talking snake, snake the whole time. He's just like, wow, there's a talking snake. And she's just, you know, conversing back and forth. I think I would probably take a few minutes to process the talking snake before answering it. Maybe that's what the man was doing. Who knows? We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. Nonetheless, the woman eats of the tree, disobeys God's command, and then the text gives three reasons that she eats. Three reasons for her disobedience. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. So these first two reasons were really interesting. I was trying to figure out what exactly these reasons are all about. And the first two actually take us back to uh, Genesis 2, verse 9, where we first see the two trees. Um, this is what that verse says. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting because it reminds us that all of the trees were good for food and pleasurable or a delight to the eyes. All trees were good for food. All trees were a delight to the eyes. So the woman is basically treating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as any other tree. And that's not what it is. It has a special significance given to it by God. Its significance is not determined by her perception or what she sees as good or as delightful, which is in every tree, but it's by God's significance. But this third reason stands out. It tells us that the woman has listened to the serpent's argument, because this was his whole claim the whole time. He said, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because it's going to open your eyes, making you wise to be like him. So her reasoning for eating the tree is her acceptance of the serpent's deception. That's what that third reason is really hammering. But what is at the center of all of these reasonings? What's at the center of her disobedience? And as you look at the reasons, what we see is that they are all grounded in the woman's self-authority. She's eating the tree because she trusts herself more than she trusts 
God. This is what the root of all sin is and all disobedience. Trusting self above and before trusting God. There's another way to word this. The woman trusted her desires. That's the key word there that the biblical author is using. It's this word desire. So she trusted her desires more than she trusted God's direction. So the serpent essentially prods the woman this way. God said that. Are you sure? Well, what do your desires say to you? Don't those come from God too? Didn't God give you those desires? See, this is really a question of how God speaks to us. How does God speak to us? It's a, does God speak through his commands to us or through our desires? Does God speak to us through his commands, his direction, or through our desires? It's a battle of those two voices, the voice of desire and the voice of God's command. Another way to say this is, does God speak to you like an animal or a beast, or does he have a special way to speak to you like a human? So this was one way that um, some Jewish interpreters take and run with the story, and it has a lot of stuff to do with um, Cain and Abel. There's a lot of kind of links between this story and Cain that really bring this to the surface. But if we think about this, how does God speak to animals? He speaks to them through instinct. He speaks to them through their desires, giving them desires to follow and instincts to follow, and they follow them. That's what animals do. They're instinctual beings that just do what their instincts tell them to do. And this is what is meant by saying this, count, it, this, this story is about what it means to be human. Something about this story has to do with how God speaks to us. Human beings are not like animals. They're not like the beasts. God speaks to them in a special way, not simply through instincts or desires like he speaks to animals. He speaks to us by his voice and his command. He speaks to us by giving us clear direction to guide our desires, not simply be slaves to our instincts. So this is not saying that desire in itself is bad. Absolutely not. And that is a whole other conversation. But your desires should not be elevated above God's, God's command. So our desires are designed to be directed. Our desires, our feelings, our instincts are not guides in and of themselves. They are things that are supposed to be guided and directed by God's command. And that's where our direction comes from. Not on our own knowledge or understanding of what is good and evil, which is the basic message here. Mankind has attempted to seize wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil by being directed by their desires rather than having God's command direct their desires. So mankind, think about this. This is what the story is doing. Mankind is seizing wisdom by being directed by their desires rather than having God's command direct their desires. They're flip-flopped. Your desires are supposed to be guided by God's command. What you do is not supposed to be guided by your desires. That's the big punch of this passage. And this is true of all of us. 
every single person in this room, our basic human struggle stems from us trying to order our life around to find happiness, to find satisfaction around our desires rather than God's direction. We have all sought to seize wisdom, the good life, by being led by desire and not God's direction. This is a story that represents all of us in this room. It gets at the brokenness we all experience. It's telling us why we feel out of touch with our original design. All of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're quiet long enough, if we're still long enough to be honest about our own condition, we know and sense that something's missing or something is fundamentally broken or we are not who we are supposed to be. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that something is missing the mark. And this story in Genesis 3 is designed to explain that universal phenomena. It's explaining why we all feel that, why we all experience that. In the same way that Genesis 2 is explaining or teaching something about all marriages, Genesis 3 is teaching us about all disobedience, about all instances of disobedience. And the, the story of Scripture is that all of us are disobedient. That's the reality. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 3. Uh, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one speaks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's tough. It's not happy-go-lucky, you know, church clap around. We're all worthless, you know? None of us have done good. None of us are righteous. But that is the bad news we all have to come to grips with if we are to understand the power of the gospel. We're not here to beat your heads over um, with this news of, you're broken, you're bad, you are estranged from who you're supposed to be. You have sought to follow your desires rather than God's direction. I have sought to follow my desires rather than God's direction. And you know what it's done for my life? It's created chaos. It's created wreckage. And God is not simply about keeping us down. He is about drawing us to himself. He loves us. He cares for us. And he steps down into that brokenness to bring us out of it. So this story of disobedience is all of our stories. So what does this story teach us about our obedience, our disobedience? Several things we could say. We could go through and say how not to fall into temptation, but this role of desire in our disobedience is so powerful. Here is the key thing. Disobedience in our basic human problem stems from desires without direction. Disobedience in our basic human problem. The problems that you face day in and day out all stem from this. We have desires that we're acting on without direction. Your feelings and desires and instincts are not to direct your life. Your desires are meant to be directed by God, following him and his commands. And listen, our culture preaches a different gospel that says 
your desires are good. Your feelings are natural, and the route to happiness and satisfaction is learning to accept yourself for who you are. No, I refuse to accept who I am because the God of the universe stepped down to change me into someone else. And I'm spitting in the face of God if I accept who I am without accepting who Jesus Christ calls me to be. So I am not going to identify myself by my carnal, fleshly, selfish desires and cravings. That only leads me further and further into my mess. I can't go out throughout my life defining good and evil on my own terms, seizing wisdom by my own desires. It will not lead to fruitfulness. Instead, I will look to what God says. And here's the thing. God does not say, live a perfect life. Because that's the big punch in all this, is like, okay, so we need to be obedient. No, what God says to you right now is, I have lived the perfect life for you. I have. I have given you the life you need. And when, when he's calling out to you, what God is saying to you is, follow me. Because this is who you're meant to be. Jesus is the embodiment of who we're meant to be. So I do not follow my feelings. I follow Jesus. And the irony is, as I follow Jesus, my desires then get directed to their proper place. My desires then fall in line. So as we truly listen to Jesus, the Hebrew word shema is the word listen, and there's no other word for obedience in Hebrew. If you truly listen to something in Hebrew, you're obeying it. So as we truly listen to Jesus, as we hear Jesus, he gives us a new heart so that our desires can be transformed by new practices. That's the beauty of it, is as we listen to Jesus, who's saying, by grace you have been saved, nothing of yourselves. You can't boast, you can't get there on your own. I've done it for you, just surrender and trust in me. As we listen to what God is saying in and through Jesus, our desires then fall in line to live a life that reflects him, to live a life that's empowered by his resurrection life. I don't think I could wrap up this any better than Paul does in Romans 5. If you really start to understand that this story of the man in the garden, or uh, what Paul says is Adam, then you start to understand what Jesus is really doing with his life. And this is what Paul puts together for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass in the garden, much more have the grace of God in the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass in a garden in Genesis 3, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for everybody, for you and for me, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Paul is doing, what he sees in this story, and what he sees in the Christ event in Jesus, is that one act of disobedience back in Genesis 3 spread to all of us. However, one act of obedience by the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has led to our life. So our story used to be wrapped up in Genesis 3. That was our story. But now, because of Jesus, our story can be rewritten. And the story of Jesus can become our story. As we turn and trust in Jesus, we will experience his resurrected life. And the greatest paradox of our existence, it is as we find our identity in Jesus, turning from our selfish desires, that we then find the true path to self-acceptance. Self-acceptance is not a bad thing. But self-acceptance without understanding Jesus just leads to further destruction. But once you find your identity in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus today, the truest thing about you is that you are made righteous through Jesus. You are a child of God. When he looks at you, he sees the spotless, perfect person of Jesus. That's the truest thing about you today. That's your true story because Jesus is your true humanity. He is your truest identity. Once we're found in Jesus, then we can claim, I find that everything I am is everything I should be. When you find Jesus as your identity, you find that everything I am is everything that I should be. We can declare we're satisfied in you. We desire nothing else but you. And our desires are satisfied. So we can praise God for his grace. This story is showing us what it means to be human. It's not without desire, but it's with desires in their proper place. And once we have a radical encounter with the grace of God, the desires of our heart are satisfied and set on a new path to be directed towards the only one who can satisfy our desires, and that's God himself. That's good news. That's a good news story. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I hope the sermon was encouraging, edifying to you. And um, we only have a few more episodes left in this series. 
We'll probably wrap it up in the next few weeks with some sermons and probably some side conversations. But hopefully you can stick it out with us. And as always, thank you for listening.